Chapter 34 of The Innocents Abroad by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mosques are plenty, churches are plenty, graveyards are plenty, but morals and whiskey are scarce. The Koran does not permit Mohammedans to drink, their natural instincts do not permit them to be moral. They say the Sultan has 800 wives. This almost amounts to bigamy. It makes our cheeks burn with shame to see such a thing permitted here in Turkey. We do not mind it so much in Salt Lake, however. Circassian and Georgian girls are still sold in Constantinople by their parents, but not publicly. The great slave marts we have all read so much about were tender young girls are stripped for inspection and criticized and discussed just as if they were horses at an agricultural fair no longer exist the exhibition and the sales are private now stocks are up just at present partly because of a brisk demand created by the recent return of the sultan's suite from the courts of europe partly on account of an unusual abundance of breadstuff, which leaves holders untortured by hunger and enables them to hold back for high prices, and partly because buyers are too weak to bear the market, while sellers are amply prepared to bullet. Under these circumstances, if the American metropolitan newspapers were published here in Constantinople, their next commercial report would read about as follows, I suppose. Slave Girl Market Report Best Brand Circassians Crop of 1850 200 pounds 1852 250 pounds 1854 300 pounds Best Brands Georgian None in Market Second Quality 1851 180 pounds nineteen fair to middling wallachian girls offered at a hundred thirty pounds at hundred fifty but no takers sixteen prime a one sold in small lots to close out terms private sales of one lot circassian prime to good eighteen fifty two to eighteen fifty four at Two hundred forty pounds at two hundred forty two, buyer thirty. One forty niner damaged at twenty three pounds, seller ten, no deposit. Several Georgians, fancy brands, eighteen fifty two, changed hands to fill orders. Georgians now on hand are mostly last year's crop, which was unusually poor. The new crop is a little backward, but will be coming in shortly. As regards its quantity and quality, the accounts are most encouraging. In this connection, we can safely say also that the new crop of Circassians is looking extremely well. His Majesty the Sultan has already sent in large orders for his new harem, which will be finished within a fortnight. And this has naturally strengthened the market and given Circassian stock a strong upward tendency, taking advantage of the inflated market. Many of our shrewdest operators are selling short. Here are hints of a 
corner on Wallachians. There's nothing new in Nubians, slow sail, eunuchs, none offering. However, large cargoes are expected from Egypt today. Well, I think the above would be about the style of the commercial report. Prices are pretty high now in Holder's firm, but two or three years ago, parents in a starving condition brought their young daughters down here and sold them for even twenty or thirty dollars when they could do no better simply to save themselves and the girls from dying of want it is sad to think of so distressing a thing as this and i for one am sincerely glad the prices are up again commercial morals especially are bad there is no gainsaying that greek turkish and armenian morals consist only in attending church regularly on the appointed sabbath and in breaking the ten commandments all the balance of the week it comes natural to them to lie and cheat in the first place and then they go on and improve on nature until they arrive at perfection in recommending his son to a merchant as a valuable salesman a father does not say he is a nice moral upright boy and goes to Sunday school and is honest, but he says, This boy is worth his weight in broad pieces of a hundred, for behold, he will cheat whomsoever hath dealings with him, and from the Euxine to the waters of the Armora there abideth not so gifted a liar. How is that for a recommendation? The missionaries tell me that they hear encomiums like that passed upon people every day they say of a person they admire ah he's a charming swindler and a most exquisite liar everybody lies and cheats everybody who is in business at any rate even foreigners soon have to come down to the custom of the country and they do not buy and sell long and Constantinople till they lie and cheat like a Greek. I say like a Greek because the Greeks are called the worst transgressors in this line. Several Americans long resident in Constantinople contend that most Turks are pretty trustworthy, but few claim that the Greeks have any virtues that a man can discover, at least without a fire assay. I am half willing to believe that the celebrated dogs of Constantinople have been misrepresented, slandered. I have always been led to suppose that they were so thick in the streets that they blocked the way, that they moved about in organized companies, platoons, and regiments, and took what they wanted by determined and ferocious assault, and that at night they drowned all other sounds with their terrible howlings the dogs i see here cannot be those i have read of i find them everywhere but not in strong force the most i have found together has been about ten or twenty and night or day a fair proportion of them were sound asleep those that were not asleep always looked as if they wanted to be I never saw such utterly wretched, starving, sad-visaged, broken-hearted-looking curs in my life. 
seemed a grim satire to accuse such brutes as these of taking things by force of arms. They hardly seemed to have the strength enough or ambition enough to walk across the street. I do not know that I have seen one walk that far yet. They are mangy and bruised and mutilated, and often you see one with the hair singed off of him in such a wide and well-defined tracks that he looks like a map of the new territories. They are the sorriest beasts that breathe, the most abject, the most pitiful. In their faces is a settled expression of melancholy, an air of hopeless despondency. The hairless patches on a scalded dog are preferred by the fleas of Constantinople to a wider range on a healthier dog. And the exposed places suit the fleas exactly. I saw a dog of this kind start to nibble at a flea. A fly attracted his attention and made a snatch at him. The flea called for him once more, and that forever unsettled him. He looked sadly at his flea pasture, then sadly looked at the bald spot, then he heaved a sigh and dropped his head resignedly upon his paws. He was not equal to the situation. The dogs sleep in the streets all over the city. From one end of the street to the other, I suppose they will average about eight or ten to a block. Sometimes, of course, there are fifteen or twenty to a block. They do not belong to anybody. And they seem to have no close personal friendships among each other. But they district the city themselves, and the dogs of each district, whether be half a block in extent or ten blocks have to remain within its bounds woe to a dog if he crosses the line his neighbors would snatch the balance of his hair off in a second so it's said but they don't look it they sleep in the streets these days they are my compass my guide and when i see the dog sleeping placidly on while men sheep geese and all moving things turn out and go around them i know i'm not in great street where the hotel is and must go further on the grand rue the dogs have a sort of air of being on the lookout an air born of being obliged to get out of the way of many carriages every day and that expression one recognizes in a moment it does not exist upon the face of any dogs without the confines of that street all others sleep placidly and keep no watch they would not move though the sultan himself passed by in one narrow street but none of them are wide i saw three dogs lying coiled up about a foot or two apart end to end they lay and so they just bridged the street neatly from gutter to gutter a drove of a hundred sheep came along they stepped right over the dogs the rear crowding the front impatient to get on the dogs looked lazily up flinched a little when the impatient feet of the sheep touched their raw backs sighed and 
lay peacefully down again. No talk could be plainer than that, so some of the sheep jumped over them, and others scrambled between, occasionally chipping a leg with their sharp hooves, and when the whole flock had made the trip, the dogs sneezed a little in the cloud of dust, but never budged their bodies an inch. I thought I was lazy, but I'm a steam engine compared to a Constantinople dog. But was not that singular scene for a city at a million inhabitants? These dogs are the scavengers of the city. That is their official position, and a hard one it is. However, it is their protection, but for their usefulness and partially cleansing these terrible streets, they would not be tolerated long. They eat anything and everything that comes in their way, from melon rinds and spoiled grapes, up through all grades and species of dirt and refuse, to their own dead friends and relatives, and yet they are always lean always hungry, always despondent. The people are loath to kill them, do not kill them, in fact. The Turks have an innate antipathy to taking the life of any dumb animal, it is said. But they do worse. They hang and kick and stone and scald these creatures to the very verge of death, and then leave them to live and suffer. Once a sultan proposed to kill off all the dogs here and did begin the work, but the populace raised such a howl of horror about it that the massacre was stayed. After a while, he proposed to remove them all to an island in the Sea of Marmora. No objection was offered, and a shipload or so was taken away. But when it came to be known that somehow or other the dogs never got to the island, but always fell overboard in the night and perished. Another howl was raised, and the transportation scheme was dropped. So the dogs remain in peaceable possession of the streets. I do not say that they do not howl at night, nor that they do not attack people who have not a red fez on their heads. I only say that it would be mean for me to accuse them of these unseemly things who have not seen them do them with my own eyes and heard them with my own ears. I was a little surprised to see Turks and Greeks playing newsboy right here in this mysterious land where the giants and genie of the Arabian Nights once dwelt. Or winged horses and hydra-headed dragons, guarded enchanted castles, where princes and princesses flew through the air on carpets that obeyed a mystic talisman, where cities whose houses were made of precious stones sprang up in the night under the hand of a magician, and where busy marts were suddenly stricken with a spell, and each citizen lay or sat or stood with a weapon raised or foot advanced just as he was, speechless and motionless, till time had told a hundred years. It was curious to see newsboys selling papers in so dreamy a land as that, 
and to say truly it is comparatively a new thing here the selling of newspapers it had its birth in constantinople about a year ago it was a child of the prussian and austrian war there's one paper published here in the english language the levant herald and there are generally a number of greek and a few french papers rising and falling struggling up and falling again newspapers are not popular with the sultan's government they do not understand journalism the proverb says the unknown is always great to the court the newspaper is a mysterious and rascally institution they know what a pestilence is because they have one occasionally that thins the people out at the rate of two thousand a day and they regard a newspaper as a mild form of pestilence when it goes astray they suppress it pounce upon it without warning and throttle it when it don't go astray for a long time they get suspicious and throttle it anyhow because they think it is hatching deviltry imagine the grand vizier and solemn council with the magnates of the realm spelling his way through the hated newspaper and finally delivering his profound decision this thing means mischief it is too darkly too suspiciously inoffensive suppress it warn the publisher that he cannot have this sort of thing put the editor in prison the newspaper business has its inconveniences in constantinople two greek papers and one french one were suppressed here within a few days of each other no victories of the cretans are allowed to be printed from time to time the grand vizier sends a notice to the various editors that the cretan insurrection is entirely suppressed although that editor knows better he still has to print the notice the levant herald is too fond of speaking praisefully of americans to be popular with the sultan who does not relish our sympathy with the cretans and therefore that paper has to be particularly circumspect in order to keep out of trouble once the editor forgetting the official notice in his paper that the cretans were crushed out printed a letter of a very different tenor from the american consul in crete and was fined two hundred and fifty dollars for it shortly he printed another from the same source and was imprisoned three months for his pains i think i could get the assistant editorship of the levant herald but i'm going to try to worry along without it to suppress a paper here involves the ruin of the publisher almost but in naples i think they speculate on misfortunes of that kind papers are suppressed there every day and spring up the next day under a new name during the ten days or a fortnight we stayed there one paper was murdered and resurrected twice the newsboys are smart there just as they are elsewhere they take advantage of popular weaknesses 
when they find they are not likely to sell out they approach a citizen mysteriously and say in a low voice last copy sir double price paper just been suppressed the man buys it of course and finds nothing in it they do say i do not vouch for it but they do say that men sometimes print a vast edition of a paper with a ferociously seditious article in it distribute it quickly among the newsboys and clear out till the government in indignation cools it pays well confiscation don't amount to anything the type and presses are not worth taking care of there's only one english newspaper in naples it has seventy subscribers the publisher is getting rich very deliberately very deliberately indeed i never shall want another turkish lunch the cooking apparatus was in the little lunch-room near the bazaar and it was all open to the street the cook was slovenly and so was the table it had no cloth on it the fellow took a mass of sausage meat and coated it round a wire and laid it on a charcoal fire to cook when it was done he laid it aside and a dog walked sadly in and nipped it smelled it first and probably recognized the remains of a friend the cook took it away from him and laid it before us jack said i pass he plays euchre sometimes and we all passed in turn then the cook baked a broad flat wheaten cake greased it well with the sausage and started towards us with it it dropped in the dirt and he picked it up and polished it on his breeches laid it before us jack said i pass we all passed he put some eggs in a frying pan and stood pensively prying slabs of meat from between his teeth with a fork then he used the fork to turn the eggs with and brought them along jack said pass again and all followed suit we did not know what to do so we ordered a new ration of sausage the cook got out his wire, apportioned a proper amount of sausage meat, spat it on his hands, and fell to work. This time, with one accord, we all passed out. We paid and left. That's all I learned about Turkish lunches. A Turkish lunch is good, no doubt, but it has its little drawbacks. When I think how I've been swindled by books of Oriental travel, I want to tourist for breakfast for years and years i've dreamed of the wonders of the turkish bath for years and years i fancied myself that i would yet enjoy one many and many a time in fancy i have lain in the marble bath and breathed the slumberous fragrance of eastern spices that filled the air and passed through a weird and complicated system of pulling and hauling and drenching and scrubbing by a gang of naked savages who loomed vast and vaguely through the steaming mists like demons then rested for a while on a divan fit for a king then passed through another complex ordeal and one more fearful than the first and finally swathed in soft fabrics 
been conveyed to a princely salon and laid on a bed of eider-down where eunuchs gorgeous of costume fanned me while i drowsed and dreamed or contentedly gazed at the rich hangings of the apartment the soft carpets the sumptuous furniture the pictures and drank delicious coffee smoked the smoothing nargilly and dropped at the last into a tranquil repose lulled by sensuous odors from unseen censers by the gentle influence of the nargilly's persian tobacco and by the music of fountains that counterfeited the pattering of summer rain that was the picture just as i got it from some incendiary books of travel it was a poor miserable imposture the reality is no more like it than the five points are like the garden of eden they received me in a great court paved with marble slabs around it were broad galleries one above another carpeted with seedy matting railed with unpainted balustrades and furnished with huge rickety chairs cushioned with rusty old mattresses indented with impressions left by the forms of nine successive generations of men who had reposed upon them the place was a vast naked dreary its court a barn its gallery stalls for human horses its cadaverous half-nude varlets that appeared in the establishment had nothing of poetry in their appearance nothing of romance nothing of oriental splendor they shed no entrancing odors just the contrary their hungry eyes and their lank forms continually suggested one glaring unsentimental fact they wanted what they term in california a square meal i went into one of the racks and undressed an unclean starveling wrapped a gaudy tablecloth about his loins and hung a white rag over my shoulders if i had had a tub then it would have, have come natural to me to take in washing i was then conducted downstairs into the wet slippery court and the first things that attracted my attention were my heels my fall excited no comment they expected it no doubt it belonged in the list of softening sensuous influences peculiar to this home of eastern luxury it was softening enough certainly but its application was not happy they now gave me a pair of wooden clogs benches in miniature with leather straps over them to confine my feet which they would have done only i do not wear number thirteens these things dangled uncomfortably by the straps when i lifted up my feet and came down in awkward and unexpected places when i put them on the floor again and sometimes turned sideways and wrenched my ankles out of joint however it was all oriental luxury and i did what i could to enjoy it they put me in another part of the barn and laid me on a stuffy sort of pallet 
which was not made of cloth of gold or Persian shawls, but was merely the unpretending sort of thing I have seen in the negro quarters of Arkansas. There was nothing whatever in this dim marble prison but five more of these beers. It was a very solemn place. I expected that the spiced odors of Araby were going to steal over my senses now, but they did not. A copper-colored skeleton with a rag about him brought me a glass decanter of water with a lighted tobacco pipe in the top of it and a pliant stem a yard long with a brass mouthpiece to it. It was the famous Nargili of the East, the thing the Grand Turk smokes in the pictures. This began to look like luxury. I took one blast at it, and it was sufficient. The smoke went in great volume down into my stomach, my lungs, and even the uttermost parts of my frame. I exploded one mighty cough, and it was as if Vesuvius had let go. For the next five minutes I smoked at every pore, like a frame-house that was on fire on the inside. Not any more nargilly for me. The smoke had a vile taste, and the taste of a thousand infidel tongues that remained on that brass mouthpiece was viler still. I was getting discouraged. Whenever hereafter I see the cross-legged Grand Turk smoking his nargilly in pretended bliss on the outside of a paper of Connecticut tobacco, I shall know him for the shameless humbug he is. This prison was filled with hot air. When I had got warmed up sufficiently to prepare me for a still warmer temperature, they took me where it was, into a marble room, wet and slippery and steamy, and laid me out on a raised platform in the center. It was very warm. Presently my man sat down by a tank of hot water, drenched me well, and gloved his hand with a coarse mitten, and began to polish me all over with it. I began to smell disagreeably. The more he polished, the worse I smelt. It was alarming. I said to him, I perceive that I am pretty far gone. It's plain that I ought to be buried without any unnecessary delay. Perhaps you had better go after my friends at once, because the weather is warm and I cannot keep long. He went on scrubbing and paid no attention. I soon saw that he was reducing my size. He bore hard on his mitten, and from under it it rolled little cylinders like macaroni. It could not be dirt, for it was too white. He pared me down in this way for a long time. Finally, I said, It is a tedious process. It will take hours to trim me to the size you want. I will wait. Go and borrow a jack plane. He paid no attention at all. After a while, he brought a basin, some soap, and something that seemed to be the tail of a horse. He made up a prodigious quantity of soap suds, deluged me with them from head to foot without warning to shut my eyes, and then swabbed me viciously with a 
horse-tail. Then he left me there, a snowy statue of lather, and went away. When I got tired of waiting, I went and hunted him up. He was propped against the wall in another room, asleep. I awoke him. He was not disconcerted. He took me back and flooded me with hot water, then turbaned my head, swathed me with dry tablecloths, and conducted me to a latticed chicken coop in one of the galleries and pointed to one of those Arkansas beds. I mounted it and vaguely expected the odors of Araby to again. They did not come. The blank, unornamented coop had nothing about it of that oriental voluptuousness one reads of so much. It was more suggestive of the county hospital than anything else. The skinny servitor brought a nargilly, and I got him to take it out again without wasting any time about it. Then he brought the world-renowned Turkish coffee that poets have sung so rapturously for for many generations, and I seized upon it as the last hope that was left of my old dreams of eastern luxury. It was another fraud. Of all the unchristian beverages that ever passed my lips, Turkish coffee is the worst. The cup is small, it is smeared with grounds. The coffee is black, thick, unsavory of smell, and execrable in taste. The bottom of the cup has a muddy sentiment in it, half an inch deep. This goes down your throat, and portions of it lodge by the way, and produce a tickling aggravation that keeps you barking and coughing for an hour. Here endeth my experience of the celebrated Turkish bath, and here also endeth my dream of the bliss the mortal revels in who passes through it. It is a malignant swindle. The man who enjoys it is qualified to enjoy anything that is repulsive to sight or sense, and he that can invest it with a charm of poetry is able to do the same with anything else in the world that is tedious and wretched and dismal and nasty. End of chapter 34 Recording by B. Scott Holmes, bscottholmes.com.